This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. Welcome to Secure Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with John Berg today from Infinite Equity. We're talking about employee owner models. And John, welcome. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just kind of extending uh, the introduction and let, let us know a little bit about you and, and, and your path and, and also Infinite Equity. Yeah, no, thanks, Charles. Uh, pleasure to be on here and uh, excited to have uh, this discussion today. Uh, so as you mentioned, John Berg, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Infinite Equity. Uh, we are a professional advisory consulting firm that really focuses and specialize in providing our client solutions around their employee ownership initiatives. And you'll see from the discussion today that that spans a, a wide variety of um, vehicles and concepts, but the, the whole idea is built around giving uh, employees, empowering them and making them part of um, the, the ownership coach culture that companies try to establish. Uh, my background, actually, I started as a pension actuary uh, way, back, way back when, about 25 years ago. Uh, it was a good start to the career, but it wasn't something that I was passionate about uh, and was fortunate enough about five or six years into that career to realize that equity uh, and employee co compensation, equity compensation uh, provided the ability to take some of those actuarial skills and thinking about employee behavior uh, and incenting employees and apply it to this world of equity compensation and more broadly ownership. So for the last 20 years, uh, that's really where my passion has uh, lied. Well, I have a deep amount of respect for every actuarial I've ever met. You, you, you all think at a completely different level than I do. So it, so very nice to sit down and, and talk with you today. So it, talk to me specifically. Um, one of the things I'm very interested in, of course, we, we, we are always talking about financial resiliency in the workforce. And, and I think employee ownership, certainly in, in my own understanding over the last few years, it's really emerged as as kind of a, a new hot topic. What, why do you think that is so? And, and why now? And why is this important? Yeah, yeah. So the, the idea of employee ownership or giving uh, employees shares, and and I should probably preface this right here, is we, we like the concept of ownership uh, because depending on the type of entity we're working with, whether it's a corporation, an LLC, even family-owned businesses, Oftentimes the tax construct defines what the name of the vehicle is, but more broadly, the umbrella is about sharing a part of the overall ownership of the company with, with the uh, employees. Now, it's certainly not a new concept, uh, but I think you, you really hit on something that we've, we've seen uh, in the news lately. And I think some of it's pandemic uh, driven, some of it's just kind of wage compression and other challenges happening, but um, Companies uh, of all sizes and, and varieties uh, have started to look at how can we uh, establish or achieve more of our, our corporate objectives. And one of the things that really kind of keeps percolating to the top is uh, getting that, that ownership culture, getting employees to think like owners, uh, I think is what's driving uh, more of a discussion uh, around putting uh, real and sometimes synthetic ownership opportunities um, to a much wider audience. Because let's be fair, it's been been around for decades and decades, but oftentimes equity is concentrated at the very senior ranks. And now we're we're seeing a bit of a sea change in in wider um, 
uh, opportunities to broad-based employees. So, so how, how would you frame the overall benefits of employee ownership to the company writ large? Well, let's, let's start that the, the three words you probably hear most often are uh, attract, uh, retain, and motivate. Um, and I even have a hypothesis that every public company in the proxy uses those three words in some fashion. Um, and, you know, it's justified, it's true, but it's also kind of um, a little trite if everyone's saying the same thing. Um, and in, if done right, I think all three of those things are, are true, but I believe kind of the benefits uh, go of employee ownership go much, much more broader than that. When done well and in installing a kind of a concept of a, uh, an ownership culture, uh, the, the positive benefits are the, your employees kind of going that extra mile uh, with the customers. Um, certainly we've seen studies that increase the brand loyalty, both for the employees, but kind of that uh, promotion effect that happens as they tell others in their network and uh, the goodwill that can carry through there. Uh, w- this podcast certainly focuses on financial wellness and no doubt what you're doing is you're aligning the interests of the employees with the success that they're driving. Um, and so that alignment with uh, the, the growth and the value of the company, or sometimes you hear it as alignment with the shareholders, uh, certainly improves financial wellness overall. And there's lots of great stories um, in terms of what uh, employees have been able to do thanks to the ownership opportunities they received. And then as wage compression and pay equity concerns um, are front and center, uh, equity and, and ownership opportunities are certainly a way that companies, uh, if done right, they can't keep making the same mistakes that led to the pay equity problems on the cash side in the first place. But if done right, uh, it can really improve uh, some of those um, kind of built-in uh, difficulties that companies have. It seems to be like the ultimate alignment of culture and values. I mean, we, you know, when you sort of you begin holding uh, as a as leader of an organization, begin holding yourself against uh, the promise of your own words, <laughs> and and we 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 see we we see lofty language all the time regarding you know our, our people are most important assets, but you, you know when you sort of lift lift the hood up, you know it, it's that that alignment's not really there, and this seems to sort of be that model that's it's sort of the ultimate alignment, you know, where, where ownership. And, and so how do you, are, are you ever in a position where you're making the business case to the CEO and the CFO and the CHRO, the just, and the overall ownership group on, on what the business and health outcomes are going to be. And is that effectively cost neutral? I mean, or, or, you know, I know there's a lot of studies around ESG and all of that and, and, and sort of having that not only be cost neutral, but I mean, you're going to be way ahead at the end of the day. So I'm just curious in terms of how you make that business case. Yeah, well, so the, the, there's a lot in there. Um, we certainly know when we think about ownership culture, that's not something that you can truly, truly measure. It's more of a, a, a mindset. Um, and you know you're successful uh, when the employees really embody those values and the spirits and the, the, the corporate objectives. They're, they're thinking like owners. Um, and you can see it in really little ways. Imagine like a, a, a co-op a grocery store that's employee owned and someone clocks out on their shift, but they're walking down the aisle and one of their colleagues is running behind and that employee decides to stop and help them finish stocking up that shelf. Um, that's the sort of kind of thinking like 
an owner. You, you gave a good example as if you are an owner, you're always kind of going that extra mile and representing what you're, you're doing, but this is kind of embodying that spirit down the organization. Another example might be just say a call rep um, that decides after the, the business part of the call is done, but the customer wants to tell about the, the latest uh, vet's uh, story or taking their pet to the vet and they stay on and listen because um, that they, they want to build that that loyalty. So those are some of the examples. Now, your, your question is a great one, like um, particularly as we move away from corporations, the corporation model where giving stock is fairly prevalent. And we think about it more around like some family-owned businesses we work with, LLCs, partnership models. Um, oftentimes, and, and this is more of late, I think to your earlier question, is we're getting this question of, we want to kind of incent the next uh, level employees. There, There's always this kind of affordability question that comes into play. And usually there, they start off with some positive intentions of we we want to do this, um, and so there's some good alignment behind that. But there's always layers of approval, whether it's the board or sometimes shareholders, that you do need to bring in some of some of that cost analysis. Um, and it's it's kind of going to be imperfect because you can't perfectly forecast uh, what the business is and how this ties in. Uh, but certainly in designing the award, you can control for some of that cost. So. It's a bit of an art where you're trying to understand what do you what do you want to achieve, what's the corporate objective and that growth horizon, and how is it that you want this ownership vehicle uh, to generate uh, value to to the employees, and you can actually design it to be done in tiers. So essentially, a kind of a self funding model is one way to to address that. But in many other cases, it's more about uh, a, a concept of well, we're comfortable. Uh, allocating 5% of the company or 10% of the company to employees. So it's a concept around, around dilution. But every every analysis at some point is going to consider the cost side of this because uh, you're not giving away free. <laughs> um, the, the concept of free stock options uh, never actually was true, even though Silicon Valley convinced themselves it, it was for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think those days are gone, <laughs> I, I suspect. I suspect. So when you, um, you know, you talked a little, you talked a little bit about this sort of smaller enterprise, you know, the sort of the family owned business. And, and I think, I think most people sort of easily get their head wrapped around, okay, we, you know, these sort of small to medium sized business is probably a little bit more manageable, but, but once you kind of scale to the larger enterprise, uh, have you seen any sort of larger enterprise move in this direction? And it, and what what inspired that? And and you know, were they publicly held companies or privately held companies? And, and what what are the sort of challenges and opportunities for larger enterprises to shift over into an employee owner model? Yeah, well, and most larger enterprises are going to be corporations, um, and that means the the ownership vehicles you're working with are stock options or what we call appreciation vehicles. You get value if you grow the the, the enterprise value or uh, restricted stock or restricted stock units, which um, is more the, the current value that you see traded on NASDAQ or NYSE. Um, and so when we think about kind of employee ownership model, it, it's really not kind of true and full employee owners uh, because to get that large, in most cases, there's been investors that have been brought on and investments in, in the growth. 
Uh, so instead, it's it's more a percentage of the company uh, that we call dilution um, that is given to employees uh, on, on an annual basis. So that's typically the model we're, we're working with when we talk about the larger enterprises. Um, but there's a wide diversity of practice in terms of how the philosophy or what we call the equity strategy uh, ownership model is, is, is applied. And some I think you can point to that do it uh, quite successfully and others you could point to and say, well, they, they certainly take care of the executives. Um, one of my- Successfully, yeah. John. John. Uh, well, one of my favorite uh, types of ownership opportunities for corporations is what's called an employee stock purchase plan. And um, this is a little bit different. It's it's still an equity it's still an equity vehicle, um, but unlike restricted stock and stock options that I alluded to a second ago, where the company is determining who gets how much, how often, and they're essentially handing these awards out. In return, it's typically tied to additional service or performance, so it's not free. Uh, but the company is making the the allocation and the decisions. The employee stock purchase plan, it's a really unique um, type of program, which is instead the company is presenting an offer to employees. Uh, and I'll start with kind of a 401k because that's the simplest way to think about it, is a 401k uh, is an offer to save for retirement. And then we're gonna enhance that by matching or giving you contributions, right? And then you as an employee, everyone has the same rights. Uh, and then you as the employee get to choose if you participate and how much. And I think everyone would say 401ks have been widely successful and certainly contribute to financial wellness and retirement preparation. An employee stock purchase plan or ESPP is a very similar concept. The offer is you save um, through your paycheck and then you purchase stock of the company, the same stock you could buy from NASDAQ or NYSE. Um, but we're gonna enhance it because we're either gonna match the stock that you buy, or we're gonna offer it to you as a discount. And again, it's it's broad-based, it has to be offered to substantially all employees. Uh, but what we found is uh, one, it, it extends the opportunity to become an owner in these corporations where you may not otherwise be getting restricted stock. Uh, but then two, when we've looked at the, the benefits, and this is where the kind of geeky actuarial hat and employee behavior gets in, um, it's it's a lot different than Charles. If I just said, "Here's a hundred dollar shoes," instead I'm saying, "Here's an offer," and if you believe in the company that you're working for and the kind of the mission, and you have the ability to afford um, and, and save through your paycheck, then you're going to get these additional shares. So when we've been able to kind of measure that behavior of those that choose to participate and those that choose not to, what we have found is that uh, it can lead to lower uh, involuntary turnover um higher um engagement scores as well as uh higher performance ratings you know i have to i have to always caution that correlation does not always mean causation but the but the data is pretty compelling in in terms of uh uh some net positive benefits i really like that you brought the conversation to outcomes and and the reason being is i've had so many recent conversations regarding 401k participation, and now I'll sort of loop in, you know, stock options as well, employee stock options, because there seems to be a little bit of a conflict, conflicting energy 
wherein, you know, having a hundred percent match to a hundred percent participation on the 401k side, that's going to hit the expense line, bottom line. I mean, you know, and, and I'm assuming uh, from a dilution uh, standpoint, or certainly if there's a match in there in terms of uh, stock options, that's also going to hit the expense line. So framing this through outcomes, I think it seems to be important if, if, if those outcomes can be substantiated. And as you said, I mean, running the final lap on causation is, you know, my bane of existence. It seems to be a theme, but I, uh, so, but, so I'm just wondering how, um, are, are you making that business case, you know, as infinite equity to your clients or are they coming to you having already made that business case for themselves? And how do you get individuals or leadership teams across the finish line of not feeling in conflict with that expense line that either is associated with 401k participation or matching on the stock option side? I think it's a great question. Uh, so uh, in most cases, uh, when a, a client or prospects is first coming to us and, and let's keep, let's keep on the ESPP thread because I think it's, it's a good one, particularly um, the broad-based opportunity. Uh, oftentimes you have some proponents that definitely see this as a great opportunity, both for the internal benefits, but oftentimes it's competitive pressures where everyone else in their kind of peer group offers an ESPP. Um, and so it helps in the, the war for talent and certainly the great res resignation or reshuffle, whatever, whatever words we ultimately ended up on this one. Um, so oftentimes you have some internal advocates, but that doesn't mean everyone's on board. And when you think about exactly what you said, that expense line item where dilution is a, is a concept unique to uh, share plans that you don't see in 401k, but it's the same concept. Um, you invariably are going to run into uh, maybe someone on the, on the CFO side of the house that's concerned about the dollars and cents and the shares, uh, or maybe a skeptical board member that uh, doesn't believe in those under, underlying benefits. So invariably, the, that's going to come in, into place and information and context um, is, is one way to, to address it, uh, certainly promoting the, the, the net benefits that we talked about um, a few minutes ago is another way of kind of getting people to kind of coalesce around the idea of, yes, this strategy makes sense. Uh, and then certainly when you compare it to the alternatives, um, ESPPs in many cases will kind of stand out as a, a better solution uh, and a spend for the, the same amount of dollars or shares. I, this is a really fascinating conversation. I, I had no idea it was going to sort of land in this place, but I've been looking a lot recently in sort of high risk industry verticals. Let, let, let's just call them uh, the transportation vertical where you have an 80,000 pound torpedo flying down the highway in somebody who's financially stressed out, might not be sleeping as well. And that, and that has really negative consequences. And then you also have the healthcare vertical where, you know, you, you have, a, you know, an entire part of the employee population that's probably making less than $40,000 a year administering drugs. And if they're financially stressed out, that's a problem. And, and so I, I'm wondering if, if employee owner models are actually being, um, addressed or sort of are, are more gravitated towards these sort of higher risk uh, verticals or, or if that's a part of your strategy or, or is even that even part of the conversation? Yeah. 
You know, it's it, it's a great it's a great question, um, and I, I I think there's certainly subsets of companies that are starting to look at employee ownership and, and uh, equity compensation solutions as a way of addressing uh, other challenges. Um, and you you brought up uh, a, a few kind of industry examples. I'm going to put healthcare aside because so much of that is nonprofit and doesn't have the same access to the the ownership concepts that that we're talking about today. But uh, let's use the trucking one um, and, and other kind of industrialized um, parts of our uh, economy. They have not historically been high users of stock and, and ownership opportunities um, outside of kind of the, uh, the, the home office uh, employees. So when you think about kind of the front line and the, the retail, the warehouse, the truck drivers, uh, they, they and until recently, usually aren't part of the, the discussion. Now, uh, we have been, for similar reasons of the trends we talked about at the top of this podcast, have been seeing some of these um, more traditional um, industrial uh, type companies start to think about what do we do with uh, these employees? And, and employee stock purchase programs certainly can be a good one, or we've seen kind of special share programs where it is giving out the stock, but ultimately marketed in a way it's not just you know we're giving this stock worth a couple thousand dollars we're giving you this part of the ownership because you are part of the team um, and that's where unique uh, equity is like really unique um, versus cash wages everyone has a salary or an hourly wage um, it's obviously you wouldn't be doing the job unless you were given one uh, but because equity is not something that's just part of the standard base package there's a there's really this nice opportunity to market the reason why you're giving it kind of it's a selling opportunity for for the company so the companies that do it really well are able to kind of tie back some of their mission and their values as to hey charles here's why i'm giving you 100 rsus because you you have a risky job you drive that long haul across the country um and this is this is just to align you with the overall interests uh, one other example that uh we, we saw recently is a company extending this to their gig workforce, uh, which we had not seen. So if you're familiar with uh, WEG, um, that's the kind of app-based uh, service where you can get someone to come over and walk your dog because you're running late or you, you needed a little assistance and very simple and easy to, to use. And um, it's not limited to just dog walkers, um, but with a name like WEG, <laughs> that's certainly um, the, what... what the type of animal that gets uh, taken care of the most. Uh, when they uh, went public, I believe it was last year, they actually got their investors to reserve a special pool um, outside of the pool that normally just goes to employees. And they actually distributed it to key uh, folks within their gig economy. Uh, I love to, that. Love it. Absolutely love it. And I got a chance to Amazing. interview the, the CEO about it and, it was his his brainchild, his baby, and and he was promoting. He says, you know, I, I know some of the Uber folks, I know some of the Lyft. Like they need to be doing this as well because while they're not employees, they're still part of the workforce. I, you know, this is a completely separate conversation, but but just one. Thank you for saying that because th there are very few people illuminating what I think is the are the inherent challenges of the of the gig economy. And, and if you imagine, I mean. What, let's say it's 15, 20 million Americans work for, let's call it one big corporation with zero HR function. And, and this is like, 
mind blowing to me. It was zero advocacy, zero. I mean, so 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 to know that there are companies out there that are advocating on, on behalf of the gay economy, who who are their built in partners, is really powerful. I actually want to kind of take a half a step back, which is to say, one of the very few streams of of causation that I've seen recently out of research is in the trucking sector. It's um, by Professor uh, Dr. Carrie Liana out of the University of Pittsburgh connects emergency savings with a reduction in safety incidents with, with, with in the trucking and, and at a very high level. I mean, she you can't quite get get a, a randomized sample, but but I mean, she, her statistics team does about as close as you can get. And and it's, it's I, I think it would actually be a, an interesting. Uh, I, I'll connect you. Uh, with, with that research, because I, I think that could be an interesting part of a business case to be made in the overall transportation vertical. Yeah, and, and speaking of research, uh, we we certainly have seen uh, a, a number of different studies. Uh, Rutgers University uh, has a department that really focuses around employee ownership. Uh, there's a nonprofit actually out here in the Bay in Oakland, National Center for Employee Ownership, um, and then we've seen some stuff out of um, London, a couple other places, and. Uh, they're all looking at, at ownership and equity and kind of coming to different conclusions, but it is clear in the more heavily either fully employee owned uh, model, like an ESOP, which is prevalent here in the in the U.S., um, or high concentration of, of shares in the hands of employees, we have seen higher profitability come out of these studies, um, higher engagement, customer satisfaction, net promoter scores. Uh, so certainly there's there's lots of lots of benefits and ways to to look at the impact of having widespread employee ownership i love that and it, it, it just as a population i'm curious i mean it seems to make sort of intuitive sense now employees who have ownership i'm 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 assuming that they do financially better over time as, as a as a population is that accurate or, or am i just sort of uh, intuiting something that's yeah, no, it's certainly accurate, but you do have to reflect on the fact that the higher someone's salary is, the more likely they are to to receive shares. So there's already kind of a built-in bias to hire more highly compensated employees. How does this fit into the overall constellation of ESG and all of the research and, and initiatives going behind ESG right now? Yeah, so ESG, when it comes to I'm going to call long-term incentives uh, to distinguish between more cash, annual cash-based bonus programs. And you know, I'm speaking more in the public company space because that's where you're seeing the disclosures and you can really kind of start to discern this information. Um, so ESG has uh, long been part of uh, some of the metrics in the short-term incentives. Uh, there has been some discussion and some limited introduction of ESG concepts into long-term incentives. Um, there are some inherent challenges because uh, defining what the metric is, I mean, E, S, and G are three very broad different categories, uh, but some of the Achilles heel of bringing in whichever metrics are important to that company is being able to establish what the benchmark is, how you measure it. And uh, in order for long-term incentives to receive some favorable uh, accounting treatment, uh, that, that really needs to be kind of buttoned down and concrete uh, and objective. And many of these ESG metrics um, don't quite um, you know, fit that 
that box. So that's why you, you see a much higher, when it comes to compensation, you see it much higher usage within the short-term incentives. Now it's a little bit of an irony because many of these, particularly on the environment side, these are gonna be long-term measures. Um, so my, my suspicion is we won't see a ton in tied specifically to, to equity, um, but where we have seen it, uh, it's been around kind of diversity metrics um, and, and those uh, where it's much more quantifiable in terms of your population and, and whatever the, the objective is that you're trying to improve, uh, those, those we have seen sprinkled into a, a handful of um, S&P 500 companies. I, I really appreciate how, how you distinguished the sort of lens of short term versus long term. And I'm wondering if there's also an opportunity to open up a conversation regarding the fact that um, workforce populations, individual employees and their families and their health outcomes can also be a, a, um, a long-term value proposition that an organization can commit itself to because typically it's looked at as a short-term risk to be managed. And, and I, I think there are a lot of negative unintended consequences of doing that. So uh, I'm, I'm on my soapbox again on that, but I am. Um, but what other legal and financial considerations, um, you know, it's, it's, if an organization comes to you, a company comes to you and says, uh, you know, we're, we're considering doing this. Let, let's say we're, you know, I'm a, we're a 10 year old company. We've got a few hundred or a few thousand employees. And, you know, maybe it's because of wage compression. Maybe it's just overall volatility and, and or, or, or maybe it's just, you know, I have a financially successful company and I want to sort of uh, ensure that there's a sort of, dis, you know, a healthy distribution of that um, for, for all the outcome reasons that we talked about. What other legal and financial considerations would an organization in that position kind of want to consider or face? Yeah. And before we get into kind of the legal and the, the financial, one of the things that's kind of really important in terms of determining what type of ownership vehicle uh, as well as um, the, the specific design of it uh, is going to also require an understanding of what is what is the, I call it exit strategy of, of the, the company. So if we're dealing with a, a private company, um, oftentimes there's a desire to build it and uh, ultimately trade sale. Some have aspirations of going public, very few actually do. And in some cases, the exit strategy may be to, to remain permanently private. So depending on those, those prongs, it drives so much more of the decision-making later on because we need to know which one of those is the likely exit or combination of it. We need to know the time horizon, and we need to know what kind of the growth story looks like. Because uh, one of the beautiful things about like ownership vehicles is they're so flexible. You can do almost anything you want with them. Um, however, that also means there's so many decisions that if you haven't kind of defined a North Star around what your objectives are and what that time horizon looks like, they're going to get lost in, in decisions and ultimately maybe end up with a design doesn't fully support those underlying objectives. So a lot of what we do right at the outset is understand what the objectives are and the corporate strategy or company strategy, I should say, uh, to then guide us through the, the decision making process. Now, once you've kind of got that framework, uh, the, the legal and the financial and I'll throw in the tax is usually a function of the type of entity that we're working with, corporations, LLCs, partnerships, et cetera. Um, and then those decisions around the, the, the time horizon 
after that, you've got a design of the award, you understand the implications uh, for, for legal and financial, and then it's a question of how much are you giving it to how many people? And you start kind of rolling those numbers up to get a, a good picture and see if it actually not only tries to achieve those objectives, but also fits in a, an affordability box. I, I'm curious, I mean, because you mentioned a couple of events that can kind of trigger this conversation. Uh, I'm curious, just because I, I saw Google doing a large buyback uh, within the past couple of weeks. Are, are stock buybacks actually an event through which employee ownership is then considered because it may have impl implications on dilution and all of that? Yeah, I wouldn't say um, employee ownership is an implication of the stock buyback, but oftentimes the stock buyback is a function of controlling the dilution from what was given to employees. You can take a company like Google and I- Oh, I that's interesting. Know, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And I don't know the exact number, but let's say Google uh, grants about three or 4% of the company uh, to, uh, in terms of three or 4% of the shares outstanding to employees. Uh, and oftentimes these uh, buyback programs are a way of controlling that dilution by, by essentially buying it off the market from the, the, the willing sellers. Now, in other cases, buybacks and where you see the more negative connotation is it's a way of kind of controlling for a share price and delivering return. Um, and that's where, uh, and I forget where the final uh, tax rules kind of have come out, but in the, in the recent tax law changes, there are some penalties for uh, share buyback programs, uh, penalties, additional taxation for uh, buyback programs in excess of what was given out in stock-based compensation. That's really fascinating. I never looked at those buyback events through that lens, but it, it, as soon as you said it, it just made complete sense to me. So, well, that's really fascinating. So, you know, I'm just curious of, of the companies that you all work with, I mean, can, can you cite maybe one or two cases of companies that have uh, transitioned into a, in, in, an employee ownership model and, and have done so successfully and, and, and it's kind of a good case that we could point our, our listeners to? Yeah, it, it, and I kind of alluded to the work we do with the larger co corporations where it's not full employee ownership, it's more giving ownership opportunity. Uh, and, and certainly it was on my soapbox about the why I love ESPPs. Um, but it, when we think about kind of like full transition uh, to, to an employee ownership, typically what that means is um, it, in the U.S. under the IRS code, we're, we're talking about an ESOP, where the ESOP is actually buying the corporation and then issue shares uh, to, to the employees. And I believe I'm gonna get this right, but Patagonia, who's always been very kind of employee focused, environment focused, uh, is probably one of the more uh, famous ones of, of recent note that did sell to an ESOP uh, and is now distributing shares according to kind of the, the, the allowable rules. Uh, so that's, that's one I think that's certainly a success story. And it's a great way, particularly for family owned businesses where it's not gonna be passed on to the generation uh, where you can facilitate a, a transfer of the ownership um, through this ESOP that you wouldn't necessarily be able to by saying, hey, employees, we want you to buy the company, everyone pass around the hat. They're just not gonna come up with that. So this is it's a nice bridge solution that allows a, a third entity, the, e, the ESOP come and buy the company, but with the sole intent of giving the shares to the employees over time. 
And then what's also nice, and you see this in the partnership model, and it, it's we're we're 100 employee owned at at um, Infinite Equity, but we're we're actually an S corporation. Uh, but we see long term uh, uh, potentially moving to an ESOP because it's a way of facilitating uh, the change of partners o- over the years, as well as get, putting hands in the shares of the, the younger employees early and allow them to kind of build up. It's a really important insight you just made, and and I. Thank, thank you for that. Well, one of the things that sort of strikes me in that as well is what is sort of the, I would call a little bit more of the macro implications of of employee ownership in terms of creating. I, I think I was struck coming out of the pandemic that it was like, wow, we as a country, we probably can't afford too many more of these. <laughs> you know, we had 2008. I mean, you, you can only fill the wheelbarrow with, you know, trillions of dollars in cash so many times before you got a real big problem. And, and I'm wondering just, you know, this is maybe even a little bit more philosophical than anything we can point to tangibly. But but I'm wondering, John, your perspective and wisdom on employee ownership in terms of building resiliency across the entire American workforce and its role in terms of ushering in what I think is going to be probably 10 to 20 years of kind of turbulence as we begin automating society at a much higher level, certainly with the advent of artificial intelligence. How can employee ownership across the board create deeper levels of resilience? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. If I had a perfect answer uh, for you, I, I think we'd have like a, a business opportunity to execute on it because it, the, the challenge is that it, there, there's a lot of unknown um, and certainly touched on AI and I won't begin to pretend to have a, a, a complete understanding of what this means. But in my simple mind, I, I kind of equate it to like any sort of um, technology that has taken a task and made it easier. Um, we've seen certainly seen it in machine machinery and, and repeating processes. When those have been adapted, yes, there's been a short-term effect from the folks that were doing the apple sorting or any other um, aspect of it. But over time, we're able to kind of retrain and redeploy people into successful jobs. Um, the, I think the potential concern here is the pace at which AI may replace jobs maybe too fast for us to be able to um, retrain and redeploy and, and create new jobs as a result of this new technology, making other things easier. So that's a, that's a little bit of the, um, I don't know, scary part or the unknown, um, but I'm sure there's much more brilliant minds uh, trying to focus on on that problem. So I'll, I'll get back to what I do know is employee ownership. Um, and and employee ownership already exists, and it's already, as I said, concentrated at the the, the top ranks. Uh, to really do this well and to create more of that resiliency is to start giving getting some of that wealth up or wealth accumulation opportunity through shares and ownership, truly broad based. Um, and that's where hopefully the companies that that do that well have a more engaged workforce, have better brand loyalty among their their customers, and as a result, will be more successful and resilient as as a company themselves. Yeah. I, I I appreciate that, and, and this is so so far above my pay grade. I, I it, like I said, I'm just really just having a conversation here more than anything. But but it seems like at some point, if, if you want to create resilient systems, rely on a a, a distribution of capital. And that's either going to happen on the 
corporate level or on the government level. And, 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 and so I, I think one of, one of the things that distinguishes America is, is that we, we, we've typically found a sort of our resiliency in the private market. And, and, and it's, you know, and there's going to be some combination thereof needed, undoubtedly. Uh, but I, I, I'm very interested in understanding that sort of full constellation of of things that need to happen in terms of building that resiliency. And I think the work that you're doing is absolutely in the center of it. I, I, and I and I'm just really fascinated by this conversation and, and and candidly just I'm really appreciative of your just generosity to come and sit and, and, and talk through what I, what I think is could be a really powerful model for a lot of organizations that 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 are maybe looking for ways maybe of solving some short term challenges in terms of wage compression or retention, but really kind of look at this more much more longitudinal and to say, wow, how, how can we participate? And ensuring that the American dream is resilient and and continues to live for generations here on, and I believe the work that you're doing is at the center of that. Candidly, yeah. Well, thank you, Charles. It certainly has been a pleasure to be able to come on here and and, and speak to many of these things. As you can tell, we're we're quite passionate about it and love working with our our, our clients. And uh, nothing better than uh, that getting a question. You know, we we want to provide this ownership opportunity to employees. How do we do it? <laughs> Well, I, I hope we, I hope a lot of our listeners come to you and ask that question, and and because that, that then we'll boat down our job for the day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. John, thank you again. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Absolutely, thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure. <laughs>